Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I knew I was hungover in the morning, but I didn't know that my anxiety was caused by my drinking. I didn't know my depression was caused by my drinking. I knew my weight gain, right? You know, but a lot of the other things, the way I felt, I didn't realize it. And so I would go to a therapist every once in a while and say, I have crushing anxiety. I can't sleep through the night. I have insomnia. And I drink, you know, the standard couple drinks, couple nights a week, and they would prescribe me Ambien and anti-anxiety meds or anti-depression meds. And I would drink a bottle of wine seven nights a week, take Ambien and somehow go through life still feeling the same way, blaming, you know, my job, my boss, my, you know, husband doesn't help enough. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Casey McGuire Davidson. Casey grew up moving around the globe with parents that worked as US diplomats. While it provided some amazing experiences, it also planted the seed that she needed to be constantly performing at a high level. Being the child of important people made it feel like she couldn't mess up. As an adult, she led a high achieving life in the corporate world and the hypervigilance from childhood continued. She found that drinking helped her deal with it. She was basically having a a bottle of wine or more 365 days a year. She was oblivious to the effects of her drinking, going to her therapist for Ambien and anti-anxiety medication. When getting pregnant with her first child, she stopped drinking and things felt like they had gotten better. So the behavior moved back to the same place it had been before. It wasn't until her daughter was two and her son was eight before she found recovery. She did so all while doing a very stressful corporate job. Today, Casey's a certified professional life and sobriety coach the creator of the free 30-day guide to quitting drinking, and the host of the top-rated Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women ready to drink less and live more. Casey specializes in working with women with full calendars and overflowing to-do lists who are doing all the things and then coming home and drinking to forget about all the things. I love Casey, love talking to her. Interestingly, I relate a lot to her, even though our experiences in life are so different, our drinking experiences and even how the communities that we have gotten sober in. But her podcast and her story are so important. I think there's so many women out there who are struggling with their full plates, their full lives and using alcohol as a way to escape quickly the stress of all of that instead of doing the self-care things we know we should be doing, but we don't have time for. And Casey is amazing at breaking all of that down. So it was really, really fun to talk to her. Definitely check out Hello Someday podcast. It has great instructionals on what to do when you're quitting drinking or just sober curious and trying one of her challenges. All right. I give you Casey McGuire Davidson. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Casey, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to talk with you. Me as well. So I want to start with, I have started listening to your podcast from episode one, I guess it's zero. And I want to tell you that a couple things. Number one, your story is so needed. I've sent it to five people already. Number two is that your step-by-step of what to do when you stop drinking, what it's going to feel like, what the instructions are, is everything I was asking for in the beginning of my journey when I was, you know, getting sober in 12 step. And I just, I think it's amazing and fascinating and so many questions. And, And I was thinking a lot about how 12 step does it versus 
your progress, your, your steps, your instructions. And it's just, it's amazing. And so I'll let you get into it, but I just wanted to start off and say like huge fangirl over here. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much to me coming from you truly. So your life started interestingly because your parents traveled and you got to live in different countries. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yeah. So my parents were U.S. diplomats. Mm -hmm. They worked in the embassies overseas and they kind of specialized in third world countries. That was what they loved. So I grew up, you know, moving to Mozambique and Southern Africa when I was three years old, coming back for a year for kindergarten and then moving to Paraguay in South America, where Spanish is the main language, obviously. For two years, I was six and seven and then moving to Zambia in Southern Africa, 8, 9, 10, back to the US in sixth grade, which was oddly one of the hardest adjustments coming back into people in elementary school who'd been together since kindergarten and being like, I didn't love the movie Mean Girls, but do you know that movie? I do. I do. Like, I was like the Lindsay Lohan who moved from Africa and was like super weird. And I didn't think I was weird before I moved back. Then my parents moved separately. They just got different assignments to Africa and Brazil when I was basically just turning 14. So I went to boarding school and I really never lived with my parents again. We talked on the phone once a week from a payphone. So growing up, it was good, you know, like looking back at the experiences, at the things I saw, you know, our vacations were safaris and Brazilian beaches and cool stuff like that. And yet, it was very clear to me and everyone else from a very young age that my parents' priority was number one, their jobs. Their jobs were very important. They felt like they were doing good in the world. They felt that they were helping people less privileged than us and had a big impact. And secondly, their marriage. I mean, they had a really strong marriage and kids were, you know, the third priority. And we spent a lot of times with housekeepers, you know, in different countries. And I always knew my parents loved me, but they were just not there. And they also weren't terribly touchy-feely in terms of it was just very matter-of-fact. Okay, you're seven years old. We're either moving to Zambia or Saudi Arabia. We'll hear later where we're going. If we go to Saudi Arabia, you and your sister will go to boarding school five days a week because that's the school set up there. And I was seven. Like that was terrifying for me. And yet that was end of conversation. You know, what's really interesting to me is that I'm actually headed back in two weeks to Africa. We're flying into the Victoria Falls airport. We're going through Botswana to the Caprivi Strip in Namibia. What's interesting to me is that I haven't been back in 25 years. My kids and my husband have never been there. Well, we're traveling there. My daughter will be eight, which is the exact same age I was when we moved to Zambia. And my son will be 14, which is the age I was when my dad actually opened the last, the American embassy in Namibia They through the UN elections. But I think it'll be interesting to see it from their eyes, realizing I was that young. It gives you perspective that you pretty much won a winning lottery ticket just by being born in the United States. And probably for a lot of us, we won triple winning lottery tickets based on, based on where we are. It gives you incredible perspective. It also sometimes makes you incredibly uncomfortable, self-conscious, maybe a little vulnerable because you have so much and there's so many people who don't. And, you know, I agree with my parents. Their jobs were incredibly important and yet it's very daunting, uncomfortable, hard emotionally for children to move that often to new countries, cultures, continents, schools for such a short period of time and then move again, especially when their parents are not, you know, they have their own stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. Being a parent's a really hard job. It's really hard to know how to be a person and how to go with your purpose on the planet while also attending to being whatever role you are with your mother or, or father. And, and it's a learning process. And by the time you get through it, you know the answers and hopefully you've made the right choices. I mean, I have twins and they're fraternal, but one, the same thing for each of them is not 
not being experienced the same way. So by definition, I probably can't get it perfectly. Oh yeah. Right. All you our know? kids are going to end up in therapy no matter what we do. And they all have to blame their mother. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm, I was... I'm only half kidding. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. I always joke. I was like, well, this is coming up a family week. So your journey is really amazing. And, and one that I often wish I could draw on because my story is ridiculous, right? Like I was kidnapped twice. That doesn't happen to oh normal. Oh my God. Okay. I have a million questions. But... but like that that's the flavor of my story, right? Like it's just, it's not relatable to a lot of people. And I totally get that. And what I loved about listening to your story was how relatable it must be to so many people. And so many people ask me about getting sober when they have a job and a house and a life and kids. And I can share some of my experience and I can share truisms that I can pull across my crazy experience to theirs that are still true. But I don't have the experience of having all the things you had and the outside and the the pretty, you know, wine bottles and the experiences and, you know, that didn't happen for me, right? We were drinking Popov because it was the cheapest. Like that was that was it. Like wine was red and white, you know, like that's it. <laughs> red, white bubbles. You have the opportunity. I know you are are and are going to help so many people, women who find themselves in the trap that you found themselves in, which is this progression. This didn't start out crazy. This progression of this relationship with alcohol that got more and more engulfing into who you are. What was that like? What was the journey down that rabbit hole? I mean, like you said, it was progressive. And I didn't drink all through high school, which is interesting. I went to boarding school, as I mentioned, and my parents lived overseas. So there were lots of privileged kids who partied and, you know, that kind of stuff. But for me, you got suspended your first time, you were caught drinking and expelled the second time. And I just, the government was paying for my boarding school. Like I was just terrified of getting in trouble. So I was a good girl. Like my entire way through, I really wanted to get straight A's. I adored my parents and wanted their attention and approval. And I only talked to them once a week on the phone for like 15 minutes. So getting really good grades and being on the varsity sports teams, that was something that they were really impressed with. They liked telling their friends about that. Like it was just, that was how I got approval and how I kind of managed my anxiety of like, I'm going to be safe if everybody likes me, if I never get in trouble. My teachers and you know the, the adults around were kind of second parents for me. So that was high school. College, I was allowed to drink. And I went to my first keg party and was just like, holy shit, I can turn off my brain. I was always outgoing and trying to make friends with everyone, but it was sort of out of this weird desperation for security. This time I was just like, woohoo, I'm going to make friends with everybody. And I thought it, you know, I also was so used to overthinking everything and being so careful that I actually, my goal was to get drunk so that anything could happen. Like as a goal, like I'm going to get drunk and I'm going to have an adventure. I won't be able to stop myself with all my like rules. And so I joined the rugby team in college. I did keg stands and funnels and partied and blacked out on the regular. And it was really fun, but I still got straight A because I still was like, I have to get a job. My parents are not here. Everybody else went home after graduation and like figured it out for me. I was like, I need a job, a place to to live, you know, enough money to support myself, whatever. So my drinking just, I was always a drinker and I was always high achieving. My drinking just sort of changed depending on what phase of life I was in. So college was kegs. My early twenties was drinks out at bars in DC, dancing, moved to Seattle. My husband and I lived on a floating home, like the sleepless in Seattle <laughs> world. Love and it. it was, you know, beers, but good beers, fancier beers than the cheap keg stuff in our kayaks floating at 6 p.m. And then we got married and bought a house and it was dinner parties with all our friends with all the bottles of wine. And then it was the mommy wine culture. Mm -hmm. And it sort of evolved the entire time, but... I surrounded myself with big drinkers that, and it was part of my like identity. I was like, yeah, I work really hard, but I'm still fun. I drink a lot. That was what I did. And it was so 
ingrained in my life that I didn't think anything of it. Like for a long time, I was oblivious that this was a quote unquote problem. I knew like I drank every night. I felt like garbage often in the mornings, but like I would be at work. I was like the youngest director in my company's history and I'd be working late pre-kids and I would go to the grocery store down the street, buy a sandwich and a bottle of wine and bring it back to my office. If I was working from 6 to 8 p.m., I only had two or three before I drove home and I drove home and finished it. But I was, you know, in my mind, I was like, if I was at home, I'd be drinking. Therefore, it's totally okay to be drinking. And that was kind of my life. So as I went along, as it works, I mean, drinking is alcohol's addictive. It's an addictive substance. The more you drink, the more you drink. It became more. And once I had my son, I was 32, all of my other activities, fun things kind of went away. So I had a big job. My husband worked as well. I went to work. I rushed out of work to pick up my son before daycare closed at 6 p.m. I got home and dove into the bath, food, play Legos on the floor, answering emails while I was doing it. And I would drink a bottle of wine. It was like my own personal party. You know, you can drink while making dinner. You can drink while playing Legos. And that was kind of how I could multitask and still rebel against being a mom. Oh my gosh, I know. I, you know, it's funny is I did the same thing. I was sober 10 years when I had my twins. Recovery was fun and easy and, and all these things. I have the twins and the same thing is all the other things go away. And you talked about it in an episode about like this, the expectations of your best self. I forgot how you said it, but this like how I'd like you to be, right? Of the expectations of how other people would like you to be. And I call it my postpartum recovery because postpartum sobriety, because for me, it was it was sugar and food. As soon as the twins were born, my eating disorder went bonkers because... And I've been getting a hold of that and working and recovering from that ever since for the same reason, because it was all encompassing and I had no time for me. And one thing you described in one of your episodes, we get into these habits, right? And in relationships and these cycles. And your husband's you know, he had these long standing, like, well, I have this in the evening and I have, I coach baseball and I do this and I do that. And men, in my experience, they have this <laughs> uncanny ability to take care of themselves in any situation. Like they assert themselves and their self care, no matter what the scenario is. And all almost obliviously, like it literally does not occur to them. And it's, it's actually what we should be doing. Yes. But yes. we, I always look at it and, and having little boys has helped me realize this is literally wiring. <laughs> like, oh, you're wired that way. That I'm thinking about the family, the group, right? The nurturer. And they're thinking about the success of the individual. And it's just like, it's literally, they don't see it. And that pattern that you described where you're sitting at home drinking and he's out, you know, coaching baseball. Coach, yeah. And like all these things. And you're like, well, well, when do I get time? When, how do I get, how do I put my schedule? in there. Do, do I get a schedule? Do I get to leave the kids? Is it okay for mom to leave the kids? A Jolene Parks, who does a lot around gray area drinking, says sort of our rewards initially are a lot of things, right? Like I used to go snowshoeing. I used to go kayaking. I used to take guitar lessons weekly. And now that my kids are older, they're eight and 14, I'm getting back to a lot of that. Not all, because I spend a lot of time driving to baseball games for my son and hip hop things for my daughter, but I'm getting back into it. But all of that kind of went away because it was work and daycare, pickup and kid. And being a mom, I mean, it's lovely and wonderful and you adore them. It is exhausting and thankless. I mean, you go from being an independent woman who kind of doesn't have to really ask permission for anything to asking your husband if you can do basic things like go to a gym, because if I'm going, he has to be home or he has to have my son or whatever it is. But also, I mean, you give, 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 and your kid five minutes later is hysterically screaming at you and throwing stuff on the floor. And you're like, oh my God, I, you know, what do you want from me? You're unconsolable. And like, I've been doing this for three weeks, you know? Yeah. And you're not sleeping yeah. and you're not eating well, and maybe you're drinking or all the other things and your marriage and your finances are different. And yeah. 
is it the right school? And, you know, oh my God, this is the age I was when this happened to me, you know, or like just, I mean, it is, it's, it's a tidal wave and yeah. And you're supposed to be thin and you're getting (laughs) pressure at work because you're clearly distracted. Like I said, I used to work till 8 PM. Right. And I used to come home and do emails at night. So you're not achieving at the way they expect you to. You are, you do get this unconscious bias against you at work. Your marriage, like you said, is just not as good. How can it be when you're both like pulled in so many directions and yet you're supposed to be thin and happy and smiling and just grateful. And, you know, my husband and I always were like, we always knew we wanted a family. We really did. We were just like, we want a family. We never actually wanted a baby. Like we love our kids, but I don't love kids. Like I'm not... Right, like right. The volunteer. Right. I'm not the finger yeah. painting mom. I'm not yep. the like hide and seek mom. I just never was. Yep, me too. Yeah, that was really hard. I like trying to entertain and like play the baby games was, I was like, this is the end of me. Like this is, I I don't know what to do. And then I saw the moms where it came so easily to them. I was like, God, that, you know, your kid's loving that. And wow. And, and what I find is I'm better for a different age group and that it's a season of life, right? It's a season of life. And it's very, very different when you carry the children and birth the children and your body and all the things. And when you have a career working and being a mom is in the modern world is this amazing thing that I've seen where (laughs) no matter what we do or say, the experience I had is not equal to the experience my husband had. No matter what, you can't make it equal. The stress, like all the things, it wasn't equal. It can't be. I could say, honey, you are waking up tonight in the middle of the night. Guess what happens when they make up at three in the morning? Guess who they want? They want mom, right? So what am I going to do? Hide under the bed and not not go in there, even if it's his turn? You know, it's like some of that stuff you can't offload. I mean, I could go on and on about it, right? Like I think that women's lives, once they have a baby, change about 80% and men's lives change 20%. It it shifts, but not as much. And there's, you know, there's still that whole emotional load of, you know, my husband is not calculating the dentist appointments and the doctor's appointments and the summer camp schedule in February because you have to sign up to get in. And, you know, it isn't the same. It really isn't. And yet I was the primary breadwinner. I made three times what my husband made because I was in corporate digital marketing at big companies. He was at the time a sixth grade teacher and a baseball and basketball coach. Super important. But I also had the pressure of the job, the hours, the business travel. So all of that contributed to me drinking, right? And I would have drank anyway. I mean, I'm always like, yeah, you drink because of your job, your schedule, your anxiety, your boss. I drank because I drank. I liked it. I liked the physical effect. And I was oblivious. Like I literally did not know. I hung out with a lot of big drinkers. I also hung out with a bunch of normal drinkers. My husband was one of the normal ones. So was my best friend two girlfriends, but I didn't know anyone who had struggled with alcohol. I truly did not know that the wake-ups at 3 a.m. with the crushing anxiety, I was oblivious that that was alcohol-related for a long time. I knew I was hungover in the morning, but I didn't know that my anxiety was caused by my drinking. I didn't know my depression was caused by my drinking. I knew my weight gain, right? You know, But a lot of the other things, the way I felt, I didn't realize it. And so I would go to a therapist every once in a while and say, I have crushing anxiety. I can't sleep through the night. I have insomnia. And I drink, you know, the standard couple drinks, couple nights a week. And they would prescribe me Ambien and anti-anxiety meds or anti-depression meds. And I would drink a bottle of wine seven nights a week, take Ambien and somehow go through life still feeling the same way, blaming, you know, my job, my boss, my, you know, husband doesn't help enough, you know, whatever. And I really love working with women who are in similar situations that I was because A, I get it. I get why it's hard to talk to people about it. I get that you still have to do your job. Most of the women I work with, 
sort of a lot of people around them don't maybe think they need to stop. Obviously, some people do, but the people around them don't get it. They don't get why they can't moderate. They don't get why this is hard. They also are afraid that were they to stop drinking, everybody would think that they had a quote unquote problem, problem, right? Like if you were to stop, then people would think you had a problem. The fact that you're falling down, leaving the happy hour after work, like that's, you know, embarrassing, cringing, funny. The fact that you're having inappropriate relationships, not relationships, but like sharing stuff and saying stuff you shouldn't say at a work event. Oh, that's funny. You know, but God, if you were to not drink, then what would people think of you? Would they not promote you? You know, what would my friends say? I mean, I literally thought if I didn't drink, I would never have fun again. I mean, I was like, what do people do who don't drink? Do they just sit there at night on the couch staring at each other? Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, it's much more glamorous to be half zoned out and pass out on the couch. Like, yeah, that's, you know, it's crazy. One of the things that I've realized over the course of my sobriety is that I know my alcoholism is speaking to me. And when I say my alcoholism, I mean... It had literally changed the subject and the substance rather. It's the same thing. And I know that that's what it is when my brain goes, but how will I ever feel joy, pleasure, or have fun? That is the first, my addiction, whatever it is I'm talking about not doing anymore, my brain will say, I will never have fun again. I will never feel joy. How will I have any happiness in my life? And that immediately goes, bing. That's your addiction because that's the voice. It's like, you can't do that. You'll never be happy ever again. Yeah. And there's so many. I mean, I always think the voice that like whispers to you that drinking is a good idea. I mean, I always, the one I hear is this is all too hard. You know, why can other people cope? Why is nobody helping me? In my mind, I'm just like, this is all too hard. Stop, drop and roll. You know, like that is do not pass go drop 17 balls, go take care of yourself, all those things. Because it's, you know, I always think that once you get away from drinking regularly, once you go through the really tough stuff, once you're enjoying life without alcohol, anytime you want to drink, which you do, you have thoughts like, oh God, I wish I could have a drink. It's like a canary in the coal mine. It is something that you need that you aren't getting. And the need is valid, right? So I'm always like, okay, why do you want to drink? What emotion are you trying to feel or not? feel? Are you bored? Are you overwhelmed? Do you feel like you don't have enough excitement in your life? Are you resentful, but you don't want to piss off your husband by actually voicing it? And then like, all right, that's what I want. What are other ways I can get it? Because we get so lazy. Drinking is like our easy button. Because it takes no time. I mean, it takes no time. That's how the eating was. It was like, it takes no time. And it's something you can fit into being a mom where it doesn't theoretically, I mean, emotionally it takes away, but like you can fit it into that, that, you know, that routine and then you're still a good mom, right? You're still a good mom. And you mom. get that dopamine hit, right? You right. just you get, get the, the like, this is something for me. This feels good. I get a treat. Yep. And it doesn't, it doesn't interfere with everybody else's schedule or, you it's know, harder but, to go for a run. You know what 100%, I mean? A lot. 100%. As you said, you have to ask people Permission. for help. You have to include other people. You have to ask for help. You have to ask for support. And that's hard. It's just harder. Your journey with this as in in stopping drinking, you, as I understand, decided not to go the 12-step route. Is that correct? Yes. I did try 12-step. My first attempt at stopping drinking was when my son was five. That was nine years ago. I feel like a lot of the other tools, support, sober coaching, online programs didn't come around until about six or seven years ago. That's when I was introduced to them. So I went to a therapist who I specifically chose because he specialized in anxiety and addiction. And then I went in there and said, I got to talk to you about my anxiety. I'm so busy. I have X, I have Y. And by the way, I drink a bottle of wine at night. And he was like, let's talk about your drinking. I was like, no, no, no. Let's talk about my boss, you know? And he had gone through 12 steps. He was sober, which was incredibly helpful. And that's what I needed. I needed someone to like get to the root of it, even though I didn't want to 
talk about it. I desperately didn't want to stop drinking. And I joined an online group, private Facebook group that I love. And one of the women there, you know, introduced myself with like shaking as I did it. I got so much love back, like so much love back, so much I get it. You know, I posted a picture of me and my beautiful five-year-old redheaded son and was like, I work. Why can I do everything else in my life except the drinking? And there was a woman there. They were like, you have to talk to Jill. And she was four months sober. She was my age. She was a lawyer. She lived in Seattle and she was going to to 12 step. So she took me to my meeting at the time. You know, I was like, well, bucket list. Never thought I'd do this, you know, walk into that church basement. And it was lovely. The people were lovely. I laughed. Of course, my first meeting, I cried hysterically, just overcome with like, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe this is going on. Everything people, I mean, you know, introducing myself crying. And yet I did it for four months and it just wasn't for me. Like I met a lot of nice people. I still incorporate a lot of the the mantras, the thoughts, the beliefs, but I'm not a religious person. I don't like instructions written by someone. You know what I mean? Like it was just not for me. So I went back to drinking, of course, as one does and drank for about 22 more months. You know, they always say that recovery ruins you for drinking and it totally does. I knew too much for 22 months, every picture, because I made a lot of sober friends on Facebook and elsewhere, every picture that was taken and I drank every night, I would push the wine glass out of the way so that it wasn't in any photographs with me. I would go to the grocery store and buy my six pack of bottles of wine because of course you get the 10% discount. So, you know, that's why not because I needed six. I would lay them down in the bottom of my cart and cover them with my (laughs) grocery bags and check what line I was going into to check out. I mean, that's not fun. That's not sophisticated. That's not relaxing. And, you know, every hangover, every time my husband said, we talked about this and I was like, is he fucking with me or did we actually? Because literally my mind is blank. I knew too much. I knew it was the alcohol. Like the first time I stopped drinking and my life got better, but I was like, oh, that was situational. It wasn't the alcohol. It was, I'm better now. I have better coping skills. My husband is nicer. You know, I left that shitty job. The second time I was like, oh, this is the alcohol. I was always a member of that online secret, not drinking Facebook group. I read it. I didn't, of course, post because I was drinking. And one night at 3 a.m., someone was posting about yet another day one. And in the comments, someone said, you know, you should really talk to this sober coach who does a hundred day challenge. She helped me. She's amazing. And I went into work and in my big office at 10 a.m. hungover and, you know, pulled up her website and signed up. And that was my last day one. I love that. I love that. And how did you find this path that worked for you and and then decide to write about it? Yeah. Well, I have to give credit where credit is due. And I worked with Belle Robertson of Tired of Thinking About Drinking. And she had a blog for a long time and then started this 100-day challenge. You know, Her program was you sign up with her and you basically get a sober pen pal for a year. Hmm. Um, and she has audios and emails. But what I liked about her was it was an incremental approach, right? I mean, my God, I couldn't get past four days without drinking. So a hundred days felt like insanity to me. If someone had said, you're an alcoholic, you can never drink again. I would have been like, fuck no, I want to keep drinking. Like you're kill- No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you haven't lost. Like that's the other thing people would say to me, you, you know, you're an alcoholic. You have to stop drinking. I'm like, uh, well, okay. Like there's a lot of evidence. They, they had a lot of evidence. We had a lot of things we could use to pull up to confirm that. Well, what if you don't? What if you, what yeah. if it's okay? It's, it's up here that's miserable. Yeah. Well, and also when I went to AA, a, I really rebelled against calling myself an alcoholic. It was just, it spurred this whole debate in my head. Well, am I, am I really, Okay, you know, all this stuff that like would keep me stuck. And then also, you know, some of the things they said, like it's jails, institutions or death. Well, for me, I didn't feel that way. It was hangover, fuzzy memory, and it was going nowhere good. I mean, I knew it was, it was my mental health. Like I felt unable to cope with my life. I felt like any new request would be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I felt anxiety every day. I woke up at 3 a.m. 
them. I wasn't as optimistic as I used to be. I knew I cared way too much about the alcohol. I mean, the thought of, do I have enough at home? Do I have time to stop for another bottle of wine? Every time I tried to stop, I'd be irritated. There was no question in my mind that this was going nowhere good. I knew it was progressive. I knew if I drank a bottle plus a wine a night, 365 now... 10 years from now, this was going to be ugly. And yet the reason Belle's approach worked for me was like 100 days. She didn't use any labeling terms. She was like, for us boozers, for those of us who love to drink and just kind of incrementally was like, nobody needs to drink. It doesn't suit you. So those kind of messages really helped me. And with the women I work with, I really like fitting this into their busy lives, which is what I like to do. You know, I know up here in Seattle, the AA meetings were 90 minutes. I had a five-year-old when I went and they were either during working times or in the evening and talk about asking permission from your spouse to be gone for two hours, what, three times a week? It just wasn't what I needed. But what I needed was the Facebook groups where people were always available, the quitlet books that I could put in my headphones and listen to while my daughter rocked to sleep, the coach that I could email and be like, I'm on day four and I really want to drink. And she emailed back and be like, of course you do. Of course you want to drink. What are you doing for dinner? What treat are you getting for yourself? How are you going to distract yourself after dinner? And isn't it going to feel amazing to walk into work tomorrow with a clear head and no pounding headache? That was what I needed. And also just someone telling me, you're going to love it. It's going to be amazing. You should be so proud of yourself. You deserve a parade. You didn't drink on day 16, even though you were in tears, so frustrated and wanting to. And just the cheerleading, the knowing what to expect, the encouragement of like practical, don't go to the grocery store after work. You're going to be tired. You're going to be hungry. You're going to want to drink. Go on Saturday mornings after you've eaten. Don't go through the alcohol aisle. I didn't buy my husband beer for six months. I was like, A, I was kind of jealous he was still drinking. And I was like, you want to go by yourself? Like, I'm not buying you beer. Now I do. You know, I'm six years sober. And he never stopped drinking. But we, for six and a half years, have not had wine in our house. People bring it for parties and then they take it away. That was sort of my poison of choice. Even now, if there was a bottle of red wine in my home, it would be like the elephant in a room. I would walk around my kitchen, my living room. I would know where it was at every moment. It's like a magnet. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, friends. Line Rock Recovery is offering educational scholarship money to students who are pursuing careers in substance use disorder treatment. Many of us, myself included, owe a huge shed of gratitude to the incredible professional counselors who helped us on our recovery journey. Lion Rock wants to highlight the need for more counselors through the Lion Rock Recovery Scholarship, which is offering four lucky students the opportunity to win $500. The application deadline is August 15th, 2022, and the winners will be announced on September 15th, 2022. Please go to lionrockrecovery.com slash resources slash scholarship to apply. It's weird. And that's how I was with alcohol. I would not be thinking about it. And then I'd walk into the house and suddenly I knew exactly where it was like. And yeah. I always tell women, I'm like, because most people can relate to this and envision it. I was like, trying to not drink while your alcohol of choice is in the house is like trying not to eat sugar with a birthday cake with like two slices cut out of it on your kitchen counter for a week. It's not going to happen. You're going to like go over and like sliver, you know, and they're like, well, I can't ask my husband to not have alcohol in the house. And I'm like, dude, if you go on a diet, you make him eat salmon and asparagus. If you're doing whole 30 and I'm not big on diet culture, but we've all have, most of us have done this where you're like on whole 30, you're like, you're eating this because I'm eating this. It's not that different. Our spouses should be able to support us through positive health change. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of this stuff highlights where people don't have the skills to ask for what they need. And 
your recovery requires you to do things that make you uncomfortable. And what you've been avoiding through the drinking is discomfort, right? Is we don't want to stand out. We don't want to go against the stream. We we don't want to say that we don't drink. We want to, we don't want to ask for something different or be a burden. And you know, this is something that that I I've really tried to remember is I should not have to put things into my body or be compelled to put things or it's you know any form of that that are not good for me because it makes you uncomfortable. That's kind of the the culture that we have where it's like we don't you don't want to be that person at the table that asks for a special thing with your food. And well the alternative is that you're putting poison into your body and if you your family loves you and supports you these are things that they need to do to love and support you and that's part of the problem. And and, and it, sobriety uncovers unresolved everything everything <laughs> i mean you're right a lot of it is like not wanting to be different not wanting to inconvenience anyone not but part of what i try to do in this approach is don't make it such a big deal like it's and a lot of times it's such a big deal in our own minds because we love drinking so much because we're worried about it i always am like think about it like you're a vegetarian you go to a restaurant someone's orders a burger you order the ravioli. You go to someone's house, if you don't think that they're going to have what you like, sometimes you bring your own dish or sometimes you just have salad. And nobody's like, why are you a vegetarian? Like, Jesus Christ, why don't you, you know, like whatever. It's just like, yeah, I don't eat meat. And you just state it. It's a health choice. It's probably something you're proud of. People do it for good reasons. It's like running a marathon. If you run a marathon, your best friend doesn't need to run a marathon with you, right? You sit there and you're like, all right, but if I'm going to do this, I need a plan and support, right? Because it's hard. So you're like, I'm going to join a couch to 5K running group. In my mind, that's like finding sober support. I'm going to search online and figure out what the training program needs to be, what I should eat and drink the night before a race. You might ask your spouse to pick you up after a 13 mile long run on Saturday. You might ask him to take care of the kids while you're doing it. This is similar. And then at the end, you put the 26.2 thing on your car and tell everyone and their grandmother (laughs) about it for the rest of your life. You know, but like just choosing to not drink alcohol, it takes effort, but it doesn't need to define you in a negative way. It's interesting how comfortable it is now. And you had me when I was listening to your your steps and you were describing the first couple of days and what to do. And I was thinking back to early recovery and how some of the skills that I did that I didn't realize were coping skills. One of the things I did was I planned a phone call with my sister every time I went grocery shopping. Nice. For me... I, because I didn't drink in the bars, I going to the grocery store and buying alcohol, you know, in some sort of bulk situation, uh, that was a trigger for me. And so going grocery shopping by myself, no one would ever know. And I knew that. So I would talk on the phone with my sister the entire time. So smart. And then there was another where we, (laughs) I, this is hilarious, but I swear it works. If you have a craving to drink, unmake, fully unmake your bed, put all the things out and make your bed and unmake your bed and make your bed and do it until you don't want to drink. Let me just tell you, it takes about three times. And then you're like, I do not want to drink. But it was just strange little pieces of ideas of things about how to go around. You talked about putting ginger beer in your purse and like things. I do that all the time. You don't even think about it after a while. And it's amazing. People don't, at this point in my life, at least people do not care what's in my glass. It's more if you're holding a glass or not. So I often will have a glass of something. No one's ever like, is there alcohol content in your drink? Well, and you know what it is for some people, they're like someone at work is like, hey, we should go for a drink sometime or or another mom, let's get together and have wine. I'm like, that is just a shorthand. That is yeah. like, they, yeah. we feel like we're deer in the headlights and like, oh my right. God, I don't drink. They're not going to want to hang out with me. What do I say? What do I do? That's do I turn point. it down? What does that mean? But literally like, hey, let's grab a drink just means let's continue this conversation in a more casual place. And so even the wine thing, sometimes I would like, oh my God, I would love to hang out with you. I actually don't drink anymore. So how about coffee or go to the bar and just order you know, a virgin mojito. End of conversation. But we feel like, oh my God, we have so much emotion attached to like, they won't like me. What will they think? And it's just, it's just a short, they don't mean, oh my God, if you don't drink, I don't want you to come. They mean, I want to continue this conversation with you in a more casual, intimate environment. Full stop. That's all they mean. 
It's also interesting how a lot of people are uncomfortable with their own drinking. Mm. And, and I'm sure you know this story quite well, where you become comfortable with not drinking, right? And and it's no big deal. Yeah, I don't drink, whatever. And they like don't know how to handle it. And they're uncomfortable because to them, they have it in their minds that they drink with people. And so if you're not drinking in their head, they shouldn't drink, but they need to drink or whatever it is, or they're thinking, or they feel like they should do that or, you know, all, all the things and you bring up and you're just like, I don't drink. I, that's it. That's all I don't, I, I'm not saying yeah. anything about your drinking. I'm not judging you. It is all in their head. And typically the people who have questionable drinking are the ones that have the strongest reaction. Yeah. Well, what cracked me up, I was laughing because I used to be pissed if I would be invited to things and need to go where there was no alcohol being served, including baby showers. I was just like, what? She doesn't fucking drink, but why do the rest of us have to hang out for two hours at 2 p.m. not drink? I mean, it was so ridiculous. And yet now I had some like friends of my husband's come over, but I really liked the wife when I was in early sobriety and they stopped by to drop something off at like 4 p.m. on a Saturday. And I was in early sobriety and I was so uncomfortable not offering them alcohol to drink. And I didn't, but I was like, she's going to think I don't want her to stay. She's going to think I don't like her. And all of that is normal, but it's just conditioning. It's just conditioning that you will move forward with. And honestly, you're going to be a more confident, badass person who believes in themselves and isn't overthinking every social interaction. Now people are like, oh, what is it you do? I mean, this happens to me at my son's baseball games all the time, but also at you know, the cocktail school auction or out and they're always holding a drink. And I was like, yeah, actually I'm a sober coach. I help women quit drinking. And they're like, oh, you know, like they sort of back up. And I was like, I know I'm the biggest buzzkill. Don't worry. I'm not judging you. And they always exactly. laugh. They're always yeah. like, well, that's, that's what you say. That is for people who are wondering. That's what you say. You go, don't worry. I'm not judging you. you. I always say, have one for me. Like, you know, just kind of make it, you know, that's people's fear. The funny part is we're afraid of being judged, but what's happening is they're afraid of, we're judging them. Everybody's worried that someone else is judging them. It becomes you know, you you become so much more comfortable as a person and so much it, but in the beginning it's brutal. Like there's no question. It is it's it's a part of your identity and you have so much fear about like, who will I be if I don't drink? And that's crazy. And yet so understandable. You're evolving, you're transforming. And I'm always like, what are the amazing things you could do? All the things you always said you were going to do with your time and energy and money that you just never get around to because you'd rather drink or you're hungover or you're tired, you know, whatever it is. You mentioned this a little bit about women who talk, who are concerned about how them quitting drinking will affect their careers. And this is something I have heard. And at first I sort of dismissed it like, well, it's fine, you know, what, you know, kind of the blanket statement. But it, then I started to listen to experiences people had where they are, they're going out on sales calls or they're, they're entertaining and, and that they had already established that they were a drinker and now they yeah. are showing up as a non-drinker. Is this something that you deal with a lot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How do you, yeah. How do you I, around that? I work with a lot of working women and part of it also, it's, it's not even, I mean, it's work situations where you drink, but it's also a, such strong associations with drinking at airports, on airplanes, in your hotel room, on business trips. You know, those are all cues that trigger your craving to drink. And it just is hard to get through. So I have talked with, when I work with women, we do text, email support every day. And like, they've texted me like, I'm, you know, I'm crying in my, in my room and these are like VPs, you know, and I'm just like talking them through it, but that's what it is. So work situations, I always recommend treating it as a health kick because Mm. you're easing yourself and you're easing the other person into you navigating situations, not drinking. I love being like super upfront being like, yep, I want to feel better and have more energy. So I'm doing a hundred day challenge with no alcohol. They may say, I could never do it. They may say you're crazy, but it takes it away from like, oh, I'm just trying not to drink tonight. Or I have an early workout where they try to talk you out of it. It also flips it to a health question, which everybody loves to talk about themselves. So they will very quickly start talking about their Peloton or the one time they did a triathlon 35 years ago, or that they 
should do, oh, I'm going to do a juice cleanse. People will automatically talk about either what they're doing, what they've done, or what they quote unquote should do, but haven't done yet. And so it just flips it. Drinking does make you sleep terribly, saps your energy, contributes to weight gain, all the stuff. So it's hard to argue that this is part of a health challenge and it just makes it acceptable. But if you're like, oh yeah, I'm actually 25 days into a hundred day, no alcohol challenge. It's hard to be like, come on, have a beer. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. And and did you know that you can ask any hotel to remove all the alcohol from your room? Yes. And I do that, you know, because I'm just like, you know, it's the same as wine. I'm like, I don't drink. Why would I have wine in my house? You know, and when I have parties, I even put it out there. I'm like, hey, we'll have beer. Beer doesn't trigger me at all. My husband has drank beer the whole time. I'm like, we're have beer, non-alcoholic beer, you know, X, Y, Z, Y. And then I'm like, anything else you want to bring, just go ahead. And so people bring all the wine and then I hand it back to them when they're leaving or hand it to the last person. Like, hey, I'm not going to drink this. Why don't you take it with you? And at my last party, because I like got into all these non-alcoholic drinks, I had a whole table with where everybody put their beer and wine and stuff. And then I had a whole table of alcohol-free options with like beer and non-alcoholic wine and Prosecco. And I had like, I have in my office, these little lights that say AF. And so I put them out. I thought it was super fun. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's really, yeah. And like, make it fun, make it cool. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be sad, dreary. You're giving up your whole life the way that, you know, we think it's going to be in the beginning. How prevalent in your experience is this very functional person, this very functional woman working, trying to balance it all, struggling with alcohol? How prevalent is that in our world? It is so common. It's so common. I think that more women struggle with alcohol than don't. And we just never, ever talk about it. It is incredibly common for women to drink a bottle of wine at night. I mean, that sounds crazy, but it is It is not. My clients are doctors and nurses and social workers and teachers and CEOs and lawyers and everybody in this society drinks, most people. And so many women struggle with it because it's like, I think Anne Dowsett Johnson, who wrote the book Drink, do you know of her or know her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't read the book though. She calls wine the modern woman steroid. And I love that. The modern woman steroid enabling her to do everything she needs to do or tries to do. The crazy thing is it doesn't work. Instead of being a steroid, it's actually this ball and chain tied to your ankle and you're trying to run a marathon with it. But you don't see that until you get away from it. You know, most of us try to stop drinking and make it to day three or day seven or day, you know, maybe day 30. And then we drink again and we never get to sort of reset our dopamine, get out of the craving cycle, feel better and develop the habit where alcohol isn't your only highlight at the end of the day or at the end of the week. You need to build in other habits, other activities so that your life is way bigger than a bottle of wine on your couch. You brought up a really good thing about how we shouldn't try to do too many things at once. And I know that for many of us, high achieving, addictive to productivity and overscheduling people, we're like, we're going to do all of it. We're just going to cold turkey it. We're just going to do all these things. And one of the things that I found to be really important is to remind myself that the skills that got me all the things in my life that the world sees as good, right? That I'm, that I get kudos for are not the skills that are going to help me with my mental health recovery. Just does not work. Yeah. It does not. It needs a yeah. gentle, it needs a spiritual, it needs a flow state, yeah. it needs a whole other thing. And that has never rewarded me. So it's not my go-to. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think boundaries are your absolute best friend in early sobriety. And a lot of us have really crappy ones. Um, we don't like to say no. We get our gold stars for saying yes to everything and multitasking. And I think a lot of women who do this, they like do everything really quickly because their lives are really full. And then they come home and they want to downshift just as quickly. I have two hours to relax at the end of the day and that's it. So if I drink, take a couple drinks, it immediately like slows me down and shuts off my brain, all that stuff. I mean, forget the fact that you wake up in the middle of the night. So it's really, you know, in early sobriety, I'm always like lower the bar 
and then lower it even more. Like a lot of us are like A plus girls. I want you to go to a C, maybe a C minus. You will not get fired if you do this for two weeks, right? If you had the stomach flu, you would call in sick. If you had the stomach flu, you would not take your daughter to the soccer game. You would ask a friend's mother to take her and you would ask your husband to do X, Y, Z, or you just wouldn't take your kids swimming. You just be like, you know what? We're going to pay 40 bucks for a lesson and not go. Trust me, you will save the 40 bucks in not drinking or like hire a babysitter just so you can go sit in a coffee shop by yourself and read a magazine. You have to decompress throughout the day so you don't get in that emotional red zone where you're just like, I need a drink. I need to drink. You want to stay in this like emotional green zone where you're sort of chill. And that means take a nap, watch a show, say no to things, you know, pretend you have the flu. In early sobriety, you were saying like what to expect. You are going to be irritated. You might be rageful. You're going to need to do less. You're going to be tired. Put the kids in front of the TV, turn down invitations. Don't sign up for that extra volunteer position and just build your bubble. You mentioned your bubble. I'm like, yeah, look at your schedule, figure out what you can take off, figure out what you can delegate, figure out the easiest possible dinner known to man, and then like binge on a show every night after you get a week, five days, two weeks away from alcohol, you will have more time and energy and mind space to do all this work. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of neuroscience backing up your, you know, what you're saying and how that works and what we do with our brains. And and so it's, it follows that like you, you can't, you can't do too many things at once. And if you get the stuff out of your system, your brain can start to heal and you can start to have the ability to have fewer compulsive thoughts, right? Like it can start to be easier to actually manage. Oh, my biggest piece of advice, the biggest mistake I see women make is trying to diet in addition to quitting drinking. You know, and I did this too. All right, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to eat 1400 calories a day. I'm going to run every day. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And it's too hard. It is. So you're going to get to a certain point and just you're miserable. And mm-hmm. you don't know if you're miserable because you're not drinking or because you're eating a salad, you know, 24 <laughs> seven, and you're actually just really hungry and tired. Right. And so you're just going to break. And what you want to do is like comfort yourself. You're taking away your biggest reward that you've gotten used to. It is okay to eat a damn cupcake. Like it is okay. You know, just don't diet at the moment. Like you will have more energy to go running. You will, you know, feel better. You'll be less bloated. Your face will be less puffy, like all the good stuff. The other thing is you take the focus off not drinking to make it a diet. There's a big difference. I say, tell people you're on a health kick. Don't actually go on a diet. You need to process all your fears and emotions around alcohol and what it means and how to say things to people and how to navigate restaurants. Don't add, I really want that burger, but I'm not going to eat it. Then you'll just sit there miserable at the restaurant. Do you find that women create lives where they don't totally love the people, the friends, the groups, the maybe the spouse that they have surrounded themselves with? And so in order to not go crazy and break away from all of it, they use alcohol to be able to withstand the life that they've set up for themselves? Yeah. I do. But I see it two ways. One, we drink a lot of times to tolerate the life we've created. The truth is people are like, oh my God, I drink because it, you know, it is my one treat after doing these 17 things. And I'm like, yeah, because nobody could do those 17 things. It's too much. When women come to me and are like, my spouse, my job, my boss, I'm like, okay, let's remove the alcohol first. Because when you remove the alcohol, usually 60 to 70% of your life actually gets better. Like that is the big thing holding you down. And actually, you know, in terms of the neuroscience, it messes with your mind. It makes you less happy, less optimistic, more you know, at the end of your rope. So you remove that and there there's an adjustment period, but usually your life is more calm and more content. And then you have the clarity to look at what do I want to change? Do I actually like this person? Does this person sort of, I kind of cringe when I have to spend four hours with them. Is there something that I need to change in my marriage? Am I unhappy? But you know, when people are like, oh, I just want to drink because I don't want to interact with these people and go to this thing. I'm always like, if something is not fun, if you're not drinking, maybe it's just not fun. 
So don't go. Some people do decide to leave their work and some people I work with do decide to leave their spouse, but not the majority of them. The majority of them see that there needs to be shifts in their life. They see that some things that they've said yes to set up for themselves, relationship dynamics, because for anyone, if you have poor boundaries, it probably works for the person who is taking (laughs) advantage of like people will take as much as you'll give them, including your boss, your spouse, your kids, but it's really only your job to take care of you. But like me, I worked for two and a half years after I stopped drinking. And during those two and a half years, A, my job got a lot easier. Trust me, it is easier to get your work done with less anxiety if you are not constantly hungover and trying to remember the night before. And also I was like, I don't really enjoy this work. It stresses me out. I don't find satisfaction from it. And so I decided to go become a coach and go back to coaching school. And, you know, I was at 20 years in digital marketing and branding. I created my own marketing you know, for myself. And it's, it's amazing and I love it, but I had to have the confidence to do that. And I never would have done that when I was drinking because I could barely get through the day. I am glad you brought that up because your you know, marketing, you, you know, what you've put out is incredible. Seriously, it's really great. And I was curious what your goal with the podcast is and how that's worked and how that plays into your coaching. I mean, I just love it. And I love it partially because I get to talk to cool people like you and authors and thought leaders. I mean, basically anyone who interests me, I can reach out to them and ask them if they'd like to have an hour long video conversation with me. And I'd say 90% of them say yes. And I'm not even talking like just sober people like New York Times authors on burnout or this guy who's an expert on the Enneagram. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, like I feel like I get free therapy all the time and coaching. So I love conversations with people. I love meeting other cool women who've stopped drinking, who are doing interesting things. And I love the number of people who listen to it for free and get so much benefit and write me. I mean, I get emails every day telling me how much it's helped them and how they're on day 50 or they're on day 100 or they just hit a year or they're on day five. But what I'm saying resonates with them and that, you know, I've given them hope and optimism. So, you know, my goal with the podcast is to, I'm at 110 episodes. I know you have an incredibly longstanding, wonderful podcast too, is to just keep going, to keep learning and diving into all the things in addition to not drinking that leads us to drink, whether it's parenting teens and tweens or, you know, disordered eating or, perfectionism, imposter syndrome, anxiety, nutrition, whatever it is, like those conversations are so good. I love the podcast. I also, I mean, I do one-on-one coaching, which I love. I love texting women, supporting women, coaching them, doing that deep work, but I can only work with like three or four new clients a month. Like, And so I have an online course where I've like built out my full coaching framework and That's really cool to see women go through that as well. That's awesome. How do people engage in your sober coaching platform? Where do they go to find you? So you can go to my website, hellosomedaycoaching.com. And there you can find all the information that we've talked about. So you can get my free 30-day guide to quitting drinking. And that has everything we talked about with Ashley, what to do on day four, what your first weekend might be like, what to shop for, what to listen to, all my tips and tricks. It's totally free. You can sign up for my sobriety starter kit on-demand coaching course, which is video guide downloads, walking you through my full coaching framework. And you can find the podcast. I do do private coaching as well. So you can find that information there. I love it. I love you have different, all the different tiers of, of resources for people. That's amazing. And then of course, the podcast is called Hello Someday. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it has been amazing getting to know you. And I hope that everybody goes and checks out your podcast. It's an incredible resource. You know, I'm I'm already sending it to people and it's just been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hello, beautiful people coming back at you after an incredible podcast. Very exciting. It was an amazing one. Casey is legit. It turns out. She's too legit to not quit. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah. I think this is our second time we've done (laughs) it. 
this in the podcast. Did I just steal the dad joke? I feel like I just... Oh, shoot. Oh, I just no. stole the dad joke from Scott. I don't get to do it at the end. You don't even have to wait till the end anymore. It's just right oh, there. Man. Too Jeez. legit to not quit. Too legit to not quit. This is becoming a hammer podcast and we're okay with it. You know, <laughs> uh, we, yeah, we just wanted to, we hope that you guys check out Hello Someday. We feel like those bite-sized things that she has are really, really actionable. Sometimes it can be easier when you're trying to have some of those difficult conversations to just be able to say, here, here's a quick thing for you. And this is kind of step-by-step on what's going to be helpful for you in the next couple of days, next couple of weeks, that sort of thing. So we really hope that you check that out. Ashley, tell them about community. All right, friends, check out lionrock.life. We have an app. It is a community of recovering people who are recovering from all different types of substances, issues, and defining their recovery however feels right for them. You know, we've you've heard us talk about it before. We talk about it because we really think that it works for people and it's a way to fit things in in a really manageable way. I think if, you know, the whole pandemic thing has taught anybody anything, it's that sometimes having that option where you can just do it from the comfort of your own home when you don't feel like that you can kind of you feel like putting on a whole ensemble and going out and seeing everybody. This is a really great way for you to still have that community piece and feel plugged in. Just to add to that, I think Casey episode is topical as it relates to community because it doesn't have a, the God religious component that a lot of people object to, which was what led Casey to find other places where she could relate to people. At lionrock.life is a place where the religious piece of it is not involved. So if that is a barrier to finding community for you, this might be a great option. We are giving out a discount code for one month free. Please use the discount code COURAGE when you sign up. You will get access to over 70 different types of meetings a week, workshops, meditation, and just meetings where you can meet people who are in recovery going through the same thing that you are. There are so many different options, codependency, alcoholism, addiction, loved ones struggling with addiction. Check it out. Free 30 days. Discount code is courage. Awesome. Well, I hate to bring religion back into this, but anyone who's still hanging on, they know what's coming. I'm giving you fair warning. The dad joke is coming. It's coming right now. Oh God. All right. Literally God. Ashley. Yeah. How do you make holy water? Uh, you pray on it. You boil the hell out of it. (laughs) Wait, what? I don't even get that joke. It's not good. Wait, can you explain it to me? I'm too dumb to even get it. You know, you something the hell out of anything, right? Like you you boil the hell. You boil the hell out of it. (laughs) Oh, God, it's so bad. I didn't even see it coming. Well, it can can be cathartic for people to hate someone sometimes. And I'm giving you you that opportunity. I'm giving you that every the opportunity every week. (laughs) Take your your hatred out on a person. And that's me. Oh boy. I'm sorry, guess it's just (laughs) had to be done. Had to be done. Had to be done. On that note, if you get a chance, please rate and review us. Hopefully you will not hold the bad dad jokes against us, but we really, really appreciate that in the podcast community. That is our currency, rating, reviewing, subscribing. So please support us in that way. As always, we're rooting for you. We hope the next few days, the next few weeks are just smooth sailing and things go really well for you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.